Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Happy New Year to you. Hope at least in the first 36 hours of the new year it's gone well for you. Uh, the two Sundays that bridge this beginning of a new year, I've chosen to focus in on a very important question for our lives, and it's this. Is this, right, is this who I am today? Is this the me that I really want to be? What triggered this series for me is a gem of wisdom out of the book of Proverbs from Solomon, where he says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows out of it. Now, because some of you weren't here last week, because I lacked the creativity to come up with a better illustration, I brought back my jar of M&Ms, right? Lid is off of this jar of M&Ms. If I shake this jar, what's going to happen? It's really, really timid answers, right? It's not a trick question. If I shake this jar, what's going to happen? Yeah, they're going to spill out all over the stage. Now, how hard I shake it determines how much comes out of it, right? But how I shake this jar doesn't determine what comes out of it. It all only exposes what's already on the inside. The same thing could be said about our hearts. When life shakes us, it only exposes what's already present in our heart. That's why Solomon strongly encourages us to guard our heart, to carefully protect it from negative emotions that try to make their way into our heart. This morning, we're going to focus on ending envy. By definition, envy is a feeling of discontent or jealousy or resentful longing that I feel when I compare my life to yours. Envy is the ugliest emotion of all. Of all the emotions that could take residence in our heart, there is no other upside to envy. There is no positive outcome to envy. It is all negative. There's no bright side. Now, far too often, what leads us to envy... The gateway to that is unhealthy comparisons. A lot of our disappointment in life comes from just that. We've made an unhealthy comparison with someone else. His is newer. Hers is nicer. His is faster. Theirs is bigger. Their kids are smarter. So often in my life, I find that I'm content with what I have until I start looking at what others have compared to mine. The consequence of envy may take time, but it always leaves us competing with people who don't even know they're in a competition with you. It makes us arrogant when we succeed, and it makes us depressed when we don't. Solomon graphically described the consequences of envy when he said, a heart at peace will give life to the body, but envy? Envy is going to rot you to the bones. So our problem with envy is as old as all of humanity. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis chapter 4, you read about Adam and Eve as the first humans, and their first two kids, Cain and Abel. Cain started comparing his offerings that he made to God with the ones that Abel was making. And eventually Cain got jealous, he got angry, and he eventually murdered his brother because of the envy that was in his heart. 
It was a political thing for King Saul later in the Old Testament. He was the first king of Israel, but he grew jealous, envious of David as a young boy because David's popularity as a war hero exceeded his. Envy not only killed his relationship with David, but it eventually drove Saul mad. Let's jump to the New Testament, not because that's all of the envy in the Old. We could spend hours talking about envy in the Old Testament, but let's go to a New Testament example. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and the role given him by God was to prepare the way for Jesus, who was the Messiah. John understood his role. He had no issues with it. His followers were a different story, though. We, uh, we read that his followers were envious of Jesus' popularity, and so they came to him. John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, The man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. You hear the envy in that? Our struggle with envy is as old as the human race, and it's still going on. So let's just do a quick check in the room. I want to just ask you a question, and then I'm going to ask you to raise your hands high if the answer is yes. Raise your hand high if you've ever compared your possessions, your appearance, your performance, or your circumstances to someone else, and that comparison left you even feeling just a little bit envious. Anybody? Thanks, Bobby. You were the first one to raise your hand. I appreciate that. Yeah. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, next Sunday's message is on denial. It'll be really helpful for you. (laughs) Now, let me ask you one more question. If you raised your hand, yes. That made you envious looking at others? Did you then qualify that with, but I'm not as bad as those people in the Bible, right? One deeper level of comparison. Healthy comparison is good, right? Healthy comparison helps us make wise decisions in life. Unhealthy comparison leads to envy, which is toxic to our souls. So how do we manage the tension between the two? We can't just say we're going to get rid of comparison entirely. How do we manage the tension between Good, healthy comparison and unhealthy. Fortunately, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, Solomon, writing there, gives us wise counsel for when we find ourselves in the middle of making unhealthy comparisons. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6, and we'll just start and we'll take it a verse at a time. Verse 4, Solomon writes, I saw saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now he's exaggerating for effect. He's using hyperbole here. He's not saying that everything, but a big part of what he saw is that what people accomplished in the world was driven by envy. When envy finds a home in our heart, it becomes difficult to enjoy anything that we accomplish. Now let me give you a very personal example When uh, I was in grade school, in fourth grade is when they introduced the Iowa Basic Skills Tests. I see some heads nodding. How many of you remember those tests? Yeah. Um, I remember them well. Okay. I was kind of surprised to find out that they were still being used, but they are in many, many places in the country. Now, the goal of the test was admirable. It was every student would be tested, and what they would find out is both for that student and then for the school system as a whole where the education system needed to be shored up because this child or this school isn't actually getting the job done in math and reading and social studies and science. It was admirable, but that's not how it translated to my life as a fourth grader. 
For my friends and I, we waited for the day that they handed out the scores. And they told us what percentile we were in in the country. And that really didn't matter in the country as much as it did comparing with my friends and seeing what they scored, right? Am I the highest or the lowest in my friend group? You know, and is what I scored on this test going to lead me to success or is it going to be like just doom me to a life of mediocrity? Pretty heavy stuff for a 12-year-old, right? So it just all felt like a comparison to us. And my friends and I would compare our scores with each other. We'd go home, compare with our siblings. And we were just trying to figure out, did I do better than you? Who has bragging rights? For me, as I thought back about this, I realized I always scored fairly high in these tests. But what ruined my ability to celebrate that was I'd always find somebody who did just a little bit better. C.S. Lewis nailed the flawed logic in this kind of comparison when he wrote, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're really not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. And if everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing left to be proud about. Solomon says, Living a life driven by comparison, by envy, by jealousy is like chasing the wind. There is no peace to be found. There is no contentment to be found, no satisfaction, because envy itself has an unquenchable appetite. Chasing the wind is Solomon's phrase he uses repeatedly throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as a way of saying, that's just foolishness. If you do that, you will never know peace and contentment. But Solomon's not done. He goes on in verse 5, after warning us about being driven by envy in verse 4, to caution us against defaulting to the other end of the spectrum. Solomon says, fools, on the other hand, will fold their hands and ruin themselves. Only a fool, Solomon says, would fold his hands and sit back and wait for the world to collapse in around them. There is a middle ground Solomon's pointing to that's between being lazy and chasing the wind. Don't give up and do nothing, but at the same time, don't stress yourself out trying to be something or do something that's just not who God created you to be. So then Solomon anchors this idea in our minds with a great word picture in the last verse that we'll look at this morning. In verse 6, he says, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Tranquility is an old word. It's not one that we use a lot in everyday conversation. Essentially, the idea of tranquility is contentment, satisfaction. Tranquility is a place where we know we've done the best we possibly could in that situation. We didn't get it perfect, but we did our best. And when that happens, we can lay our head on the pillow at night in peace. We can rest knowing we left it all on the field. Solomon is challenging us to think deeply about our lives, to think about the choices we make. And here's the big point of all three of these verses. Less is more when it leads to peace and contentment. Better to have one one handful of peace while you're doing what you know you were created to do than having two handfuls of the same thing And stressing out because we're trying to keep up with our perception of someone else's life. 
There's a big difference between being inspired by another person's success and beating ourselves up because we're not who they are or where they are in their life. And if comparison makes us feel worthless and demoralized, if it leaves us jealous of others and what they have, then we've definitely moved from healthy comparison to envy. I think it's, honestly, it's harder today, and every generation may have said this, but it's harder today than it's ever been to avoid comparing ourselves to others. Social media encourages us to live, uh, to post cleaned up versions of our life, sanitized versions of our life. Only our best days, not our worst. Only our successes, not our struggles. Now, I'm not advocating that we post every struggle on social media. You know well enough that people like that that do that, you tend to skip over their feeds or just stop following them. But I do want us to realize how damaging it is to compare the raw reality of my life, your life, with the filtered, sanitized, and touched-up versions that we see on social media of other people's lives. I think the real question in all of this as we try to end envy is are we truly grateful for what we already have in this life? Or are we giving up our one handful of tranquility for chasing after someone else's life or success or happiness? Is it possible that in some area in our lives we've let envy get the best of us? Is it killing our peace at work, at school, in our neighborhood, in our home? That kind of unhealthy comparison can leave us churning inside. It's at the core of what Solomon meant when he said, A heart at peace gives life to the body. But envy, it just rots you from the inside out. So, in this whole idea of ending envy, I want to just ask you to take on a homework assignment this week. Something simple to do. One of the best ways I've found in my life to fight envy is to keep a gratitude journal. I've talked about this exercise before, and I think it's good for us to revisit it from time to time. And I'm going to encourage you to try to do this practice multiple times over the next week. Here's how it works for me. I started this week doing my gratitude journal again. I started with a quiet place. I like to find a calm, quiet place in our home where I can just sit and be present. Typically for me, that's really early in the morning, uh, sitting, sitting at our dining room table, facing the patio door, which looks east over the forest preserve behind us. And I sit down, and the first thing I do is just take a couple of deep breaths and just calm myself, because there's always a list of things coming in the day, and I want to be fully present in this exercise. So I'll find a pad of paper. More often than not, I'll use my tablet or my smartphone. I'll open up a note, because then I'll have it with me everywhere I go. And I just start to make a list. The challenge every time I do this is to make a list of 10 things. And a list of 10 will challenge us to go deeper, to go beyond the simple stuff we'd rattle off the top of our head. Think deeper about the stuff we need to be grateful for in our lives. And now sit there. Stay in that place for at least 10 or 15 minutes, just beginning that gratitude journal, getting my heart and my mind focused on gratitude. That list can include people in your life or gifts you've been given or opportunities that have come your way. It might be some relationship that you're specifically grateful for in that moment. Maybe it's the beauty of God's creation. I can't tell you the number of gorgeous sunsets I've seen looking out over our deck into the forest preserve. I'm blessed. 
So I did this exercise this week. And like every time I've done it, the journal varies. What makes the entries every time changes. Today, I'm grateful for a lot of things. We finally did our Christmas on New Year's Eve day as a family. And as I reflected on that, I'm grateful for the laughter of my four grandkids from the one who's a freshman in high school down to the one who's 20 months old. I'm grateful for Christmas mornings every year. I'm grateful for the joy of giving gifts that bring meaning and express my love to someone. Today, I'm grateful for the first winter snow. Don't ask me in February. I'm grateful for naps by the fireplace. I'm grateful every day for the smell of that first cup of coffee. It's a beautiful thing. The reality is in our lives is when we find envy robbing us of our joy, it'd be a great thing to just pull this list back out and remind ourselves. Review it. Add to it over the course of the week. We need this exercise on a regular basis in our lives. And I'm going to ask you to just give it a try for this week. Maybe you'll do it twice or once. Maybe you'll do it all seven days. But do it because it's so easy for envy to to just sneak into our heart and spoil the goodness that's all around us. When we focus on gratitude, it refocuses our attention. It breaks through the feelings of envy and discontent that we have in this life. It drowns out our urge to compare our life, our work, our family to anybody else's. Gratitude draws our heart toward how much we really do have and how much we've been given. Gratitude helps us celebrate other people's accomplishments and be inspired by their story. When we focus on gratitude, when we root envy out of our lives, our hearts will be filled with the kind of peace that Solomon describes. A peace that will bring life and joy and energy to every facet of our lives.